0: The Gospel this morning is from John chapter 21, the first 14 verses. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples, were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, Yet the disciples did not know that it was him. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord.
1: Well, we are in the last chapter of the Gospel of John. We've been studying, if you're new with us, we've been studying the Gospel of John. And uh, we are now in the last chapter. And some call this last chapter, chapter 21, the epilogue. is verses uh, the first chapter verses 1 through 18 and so some commentators call this the epilogue it actually sounds like John could end at the end of chapter 20 uh, what we preached on last week but there's still some things to be resolved here and we're going to see that so today and next week we're going to look at the restoration of a coward or I would even say cowards but it's going to focus as we get on what is a coward? How do we define that word? Well, there's actually a book by a guy named Chris Walsh called Cowardice, A Brief History. Probably not too many books on cowardice, but, uh, this, which is why he wrote it, he said. Um, but in his introduction, he, he quotes the Urban Dictionary. It's an online dictionary. You can look it up. Uh, and it's... Um, it gives a definition of cowardice in this way. If you scroll down, if you ever look it up, you've got to scroll down a little bit, but it says, first definition of the noun cowardice is one who is not brave, two, one who fears many things, and three, the most insulting word known to man. It's how we refer, think about this, it's how we refer to the lowest of the low, It's how we refer to terrorists, to mass shooters, it's how we refer to those who are the most destructive and poisonous to our society. After the Boston Marathon bombing, there was a sign that was sponsored by a union of electricians. It was lit up on the freeway and it simply said, hashtag cowards. Cowards. But this goes way back. This, this has been the, the way that cowardice has been thought of throughout history. And some, some of the, the quotes that, that, that Walsh puts out here, one from George Washington on cowardice, he says this, a crime, cowardice is a crime of all others, the most infamous in a soldier, the most injurious to an army, and the last to be forgiven. Even Mahatma Gandhi Listen to this quote by the pacifist, Mahatma Gandhi. He said this in one of his writings, where there is a choice between cowardice and violence, I would advise violence. I had to look that up to, to verify that that was really him. It's, it, it was one of his writings. He, he was a pacifist for sure, but when he was placed with those two choices, he chose, he said, I would advise violence. For the coward and those labeled as such, the fact stands today as it did 2,000 years ago. Cowardice brings one of the greatest burdens of shame and guilt on a person. Today, next, and next Sunday, we will see how Jesus approaches some cowards in this passage. Now, in particular, the Apostle Peter. Now, remember, And if you're not familiar with this story, the Apostle Peter was told by Jesus back in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John that he would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed the next day. Peter, the only thing Peter did was he denied that possibility and doubled down, saying he would die for Jesus. Even if everybody leaves him, he would never deny him. Never. Never. And then in chapter 18 we see in Pilate's courtyard by the charcoal fire Peter denies knowing Jesus when asked not by soldiers not under interrogation not under torture but by some servant girls servant girls gathered around the fire with him The Gospels of Matthew and Mark say that Peter even cursed himself and called down a curse some commentators believe even on Christ himself to convince those who were asking him that he did not know Jesus. Luke gives us the account that after he denied Jesus that he had a glimpse of Jesus' eyes on him. There was a look that he got from Jesus. Can you imagine that? And then Matthew tells us that he went out at that point and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. And now what? He's left to sit in this guilt and shame. He's left to feel this burden of this guilt. You know that feeling? Have you ever had that feeling where you're, where you're sitting in after hurting somebody terribly, and you can't go to them and tell them how sorry you are, and you don't hear from them, and you have to sit in that pain, in that guilt, in that shame. That's where Peter is. That's where Peter is in this. We see how Judas handled his shame for selling out Jesus. He couldn't bear to live. But we never hear of any resolution to Peter's story. And that's what this chapter 21 seems to be. How do you deal with those who retreat when they should stand and fight? How do you treat those who run in fear? Those who say, I would never leave you, I would never turn on you, and they do. How does that hit you? How does Jesus deal with it? Well, this is one thing to be grateful for, that we have this passage, to see how Jesus deals with cowardice. Before we get into this, let's pray. Father, help us to see your word for what you are teaching us today. Convict our hearts where we need convicted. Lord, comfort our hearts where we need comforted to be reminded of who you are, and the great comfort and peace and new life that you offer to us, the forgiveness and restoration. And Lord, give us eyes to see that, and give us hearts that are longing to do the same for others. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, although we're going to see the camera in this scene zoom in later, which starts off with kind of a wide-angle lens, we begin with seeing the disciples gathered together. But what we're going to see in this passage is we're going to see a Jesus that seeks out cowards, Jesus that actually serves cowards, and a Jesus who restores cowards. So chapter 21, verse 1, after after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. So we see Simon Peter, named first, then we see Thomas, we see Nathaniel see the sons of Jebedee, Zebedee who are James and John and two other disciples they don't mention. John doesn't mention. And Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. What do you think is going on there? There's not any real good explanation as to why Simon Peter is going fishing, but it seems pretty obvious. And almost everyone agrees that there, is, there seems to be just a, a... Peter is just done. He doesn't see himself... Being a minister for the gospel, at least at this time, he doesn't know what he's doing, perhaps. He's still sitting in this pain, this shame, and this guilt. And they're gathered together. And the truth is, when you think about this, these disciples who are all gathered around them, remember what happened when Jesus was arrested? They scattered. He told them they would do that too. He said, When the shepherd is struck, is struck the sheep flee. And that's exactly what happened. They all ran away at Jesus' greatest time of need. All of his disciples left him. So was this Peter going back to his old life? Perhaps. Did he see his denial of Jesus as a disqualification from any further work in ministry? It's a good possibility. What does sin do to you when you are, when, when, when you are just in this place of guilt or shame? What does it do to your vocation? What does it do to your ministry? What does it do to your family, to your relationships? Many of us just want to cover up and shut the world out because we feel unworthy to do anything. That's the power of sin on our lives. Even though Jesus revealed himself to Peter, because you're thinking, you know, he already revealed himself to Peter and the disciples in the last chapter, and that's correct. But there was really no resolution in that. It was was Jesus uh, showing himself and revealing himself to the disciples, saying, I'm alive. Touch me, feel me. You could see me, you could talk to me. I'm a real physical being and I have conquered death. As joyous as that is, it did not bring any resolution to this situation. And Peter was still in this guilt. Mark, you know, when when the angel is, is telling. Um, is, is, is uh, announcing the, the resurrection of Christ in Mark chapter 16. He says this to the women, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Make sure you tell Peter. There you'll see him just as he told you. Peter was sitting and waiting in that, what I call the space between. That space between the, 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 the wound and waiting for the healing, waiting for the restoration. There's tension in that space between. And now we get to verse 4. Just as day was breaking, now they had been fishing all night, Jesus stood on the shore said about 100, about 100 yards away, so it was pretty far away. The disciples did not know that it was Jesus, so it was just still a little dark, and it was Jesus standing on the shore about 100 yards away. And he said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast a net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Have you heard this story before, something like it? If you're familiar with the Gospels, if you're familiar with with these stories of Jesus, then perhaps you're thinking back to this story in Luke. Luke chapter five. When Jesus, when Peter comes in contact with Jesus and these disciples, he's actually in their boat and he tells them to to cast out into the deep and cast their net over and, and they say, well, we're not gonna catch anything. But the same thing happens. They listen to Jesus, they bring up a load of fish that they could barely even pull into the boat. And what happened there when Simon Peter recognized who Jesus was at that point? What he said was, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. Depart from me. I can't be in your presence. You don't know me. You don't know what I've done and who I am and how filthy my heart is. You've got to leave. Similar to what Isaiah said when he was in the presence of the Lord, he couldn't stand the holiness and knew that he was not worthy. That Jesus said to him in Luke, Don't be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And their lives were never changed, their lives were never the same. So that's a similar scene, but how is this scene different? It's interesting. We look at verse 7 now. Now, after they pull in this, this load of fish that Jesus provided for them. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is believed to be John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. He was probably wearing his, I don't know, the the, the Speedos of that time, uh, to to be in his boat. He was not very dressed. And it's interesting because he puts clothes on to get into the water. But he didn't want to approach the Lord looking like that. He wanted to cover himself. And he jumped into it. says he threw himself into the sea. He threw himself into the sea to get to Jesus as soon as he possibly can. What changed between chapter 5 of Luke when he said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Now he is, think about it, he's still a sinful man. In fact, even more so, he sinned against Jesus directly, personally. He denied him. Before, he didn't even know Jesus. He just said, I'm a sinful man. Now he's offended Jesus by denying him in front of everyone. The difference is he spent time with Jesus and he knew Jesus he got to know Jesus he saw Jesus with this woman at the well how Jesus invited her to get him some water and he sat and talked to her and offered restoration to her he saw Mary Magdalene in Jesus He saw Jesus with lepers, with Gentiles, with sinners of all likes. And he saw how he was drawn to them, how he sought them out, how he cared for them, how he loved them, how he provided for them, how he even served them. And most of all, how he offered them forgiveness and restoration. And if anybody needed forgiveness and restoration at that minute, it was Peter. And when he saw that the source of that, rest, that restoration and that forgiveness was standing a hundred yards away, he couldn't wait for that boat to get in. He threw himself into the water to get there first. He was ready. He knew his Lord, and he wanted to be restored like never before. So we see that Jesus was seeking them out. Jesus came to them. Think of that. Here they are, hiding out, going out fishing all night. Jesus comes to them, these cowards sitting in a boat. Jesus seeks out the cowards. And then we see that Jesus actually serves cowards. Verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. It's interesting, isn't it, that this is likely the same time of day when Peter denied his Lord at daybreak around a charcoal fire. How triggering might that smoke have been for Peter to see that fire, to smell that smoke, to be gathered around that fire. But what Jesus was doing was this was not a hostile environment. This charcoal fire wasn't a fire of judgment and inquisition. This was a fire of restoration and purification. And Jesus laid all of this out. And he says in verse 10, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. He's asking them to come in and provide some of the meal so that they could share this meal together. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled that net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. If you want to read about that number 153, be my guest. Everyone's got a theory about what 153 means, but I think most, a lot of commentaries I've read just come down to the fact that it's 153 fish. It's just saying it was a lot of fish. There's no there's no symbolism that, that anybody really know can can nail down about this number 153. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. This is Jesus restoring cowards. This is Jesus seeing the weakness of their heart, the sinfulness of their heart, their fear. And he is inviting them, not only inviting them, but laying out a spread for them and inviting them to come share a meal What's so important about this shared meal? Do you know, it, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, when he's talking about some church members, excuse me, some church members who are, who are caught in sexual immorality, he says, listen, they're in this rebellious sexual immorality. They're not, they're not repentant. They're not wanting to be restored. Don't even eat with such a one, he says. He says this, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, in other words, as a fellow Christian, and he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat such one with such one. Why? Because the shared meal in first century Mid East culture had a very significant and very powerful meaning behind it. To invite a man to a meal, this is, this is uh, one historian writes this, to invite a man to a meal in first century Palestine was an honor. It was an offer of peace. It was an offer of trust. It was an offer of brotherhood and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table meant sharing life. He goes on to say in Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God for the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. Jesus served a meal. He served a meal to these violators of of the relationship. And he invited his disciples to share it with him, including some of their own catch. This was a meal to set a table of restoration and forgiveness. This table had a powerful meaning to them. He invited, he provided, and he asked the disciples to share what they brought The account goes on, now none of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Seems like he looked a little different. And we see this in chapter 24 of Luke also, where where Jesus has the resurrected Jesus looked a little different. But they knew, they knew it was him. And Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish, similar to what he did in Luke 24 account. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Why is it important? Why is this account so important? Well, it's important to see what happens with Peter, and we're going to see the rest of it. See, this is a table fellowship. This fellowship meal, by the way, is a restoration more to the fellowship, more to the relationship. Next week, we'll see this relationship, this fe- I'm sorry, this restoration being a restoration of mission. And that's wild when you think about the offense of fleeing from their master and denying their master that next week he's going to restore these brothers especially peter namely peter to the mission to which he was originally called it gives us more of a glimpse this this gives us more of a glimpse into the gentle lowly and loving heart of our savior one that says if you run away you can still always run to jesus For forgiveness and restoration, no matter the burden of your guilt and your shame. No matter the burden, the guilt of your shame that you are carrying around today. I don't care who you are in here. The burden of guilt, the burden of shame that you are carrying that is hindering your life, that's hindering your job, that's hindering your ministry is not too much for Jesus to forgive and to restore. But you got to run to him. (laughs) You got to go to him. So I love singing that song. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. Jesus loves the coward. Forget what man says. Forget what our society says about cowardice. Is it a sin to run? Yes. Is it a sin to, 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 to let your fear? It can be to, to let your fear run you. Is it a a sin to deny Jesus? Yes. But there's restoration. There's forgiveness. And he seeks and serves and restores the brother and sister if we search our hearts. But the truth is for all of us also. You may not think of yourself as a coward. But I would argue if we search our hearts, the more we know Jesus, the more we know ourselves, we'll all find cowardice in our hearts at one point or another. It's not going to look the same, but we all have fears that we give into. We all turn and run at one point or another. And although we cringe at that word and fear the label for ourselves, listen, Jesus loves, embraces, and restores the confessing coward. This is the love of Christ. It's a supernatural love to which you and I are called to share in. Last thing. Embrace yourselves for this. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, we as followers of Christ are called to do likewise. we're called to do likewise. We're called to seek those who are cowards, those who are fearful, even those who've denied us when we depended on them. Even those who said they would die for us and though everybody would leave us, they would stick close to us. We're to seek them out too, to seek them, so to speak, to prepare a table, to give them an opportunity for restoration. Maybe there's somebody in your life like that now, I think we've all dealt with it, From maybe you're that person, is that crazy, <laughs> yes, of course. You may feel it's impossible even. And it is, it is impossible, but without, but not without Christ. Not without Christ. Christ gives us the power. Christ gives us the calling to do this. The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 6, which we'll read next week, but I'm going to read this, the beginning of Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression any transgression. You who are spiritual, you the church, you the follower of Christ, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. That burden of guilt, that burden of shame, this is what Paul goes on to say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And finally, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself or herself. Jesus loves you. Jesus seeks you. He seeks to serve you, and he seeks to restore you. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, our strong, kind gentle and lowly savior and friend let's pray jesus help us that we would run to you help those in this room who are dealing with the shame and the guilt perhaps of a cowardly action or or just running away in fear whatever it might have been lord would you make yourself known to them and would you draw them to yourself would you seek them out Lord, when they know it's you, would they throw themselves in the water and come right to you? And Lord, help us as a church that we would learn to love one another in this way. Forgive us for not being able to do that. Forgive us for the ones we've turned our backs on, for the ones we've talked about and gossiped about. Lord, give us hearts that seek the sinner. Give us hearts that seek one another out and love one another as you've loved us. In your name we pray, amen.